but also to preach. And it's always a great privilege to open God's word and to see what it has to say. And to really see, you know, as I prepare sermons and get ready, much like Dave probably does and others, that it's got to do its work in my heart. What is he saying to me in a particular time? What's he saying to me, not just as a surge worker, not as a missionary, not as a professional Christian, uh, a minister? What is it saying to each of us as we, if you are a follower of Christ, what's it saying to us in terms of following him and uh, believing in him and faith in him? What does it look like? And as you have been going through um, the Sermon on the on the Sermon on the Mount and seeing what Jesus had to say as he began uh, teaching. He goes up on a mountain and he's sitting, he sees the crowds, he's been healing, he's been doing all these things if you find out at the end of chapter 4. And he says, seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain and sits down and calls his disciples to himself and he begins teaching them. And so you've seen that um, in this series about life together, he's been really teaching about the kingdom come. What's it look like? And not what's it just look like for you, but as we'd say in the South, for y'all, right? For all of us. What's it look like together? Because we can't live the Christian life alone. That, that's just a certainty. Uh, we try to do it alone, but we can't. And so I wonder as we come, we, we've, you know, you looked at the character of a Christian life and what does it look like in the Beatitudes? And then what does it look like then before the world as salt and light? And before Jesus gives us what we really sort of want, what we need to do, because he said, being salt and light, and light in the world particularly, is that we will then we'll do good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So what are we want to go? Okay, all right, give me the good. So what do I need to do? I think our hearts, for whatever reason, want to, and I think whether in Christ or not, we think, what do I need to do to please God? Of course, our motivation needs to be, Lord, what would you have us do? And, and how are you pleased with me in, in living a Christian life? which we sang, it's through Christ alone. But we still have within us this, this desire to please God and say, is, am I right with him? Am I doing the right things? Am I doing it the right way? Um, I thought about a title sort of for sermons. I like to think of them. And I thought, one, I thought about Jesus taking us to Sunday school. Uh, he goes sort of, you know, I don't know if you have Sunday school here, but growing up we always had a time, and much of the kids are probably doing that, but... You know, you learn sort of the basics of the Christian faith and, and what, who God loves you and who is God and who is Jesus. What's the Bible? Jesus does it. He loves to do the same thing. He loves telling stories. He loves the story of the Bible. But another way to get to this is when being good isn't good enough. I don't know if you rise each day thinking, hmm, how's it going to go today? Um, am I going to get it right? Am I uh, going to have a good day? Am I going to? We sort of have this bar, I think, set to think, okay, how's it going to go? We're not real sure. We don't always step out of the door, maybe out of our bed, with a whole lot of confidence. And the way Jesus gets us this confidence is he does it different than we think he does. Did you notice in the last verse, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. We'll talk about the scribes and Pharisees, but that sounds really harsh. It sounds impossible. How am I? The scribes and Pharisees were the whole, the super, the extra super holy people that a kid might tell you. Oh, they're the extra super holy people. 
They taught the law. They knew the law. They followed the law. They added laws to the law. I mean, these people were looked upon as the holy people of God. They were, they were, and they were, they were good people. They didn't murder. They didn't kill. They didn't, they gave to the needy. They did these things. And you'll see that fleshed out in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus says, stop right here. I've got to get you to pause before you think about what it is and what it looks like to live the Christian life, to think, how in the world can you even live it? And one way to do that is by dying to being good. We'll get to it. So imagine, really in the Sermon on the Mount, imagine like you've probably done around here, hiked up a mountain or a hill of some sort, and you've gone a certain distance, and you get to maybe a clearing, and you can turn and look back and like, oh, there's our car down there in the parking lot. You know, you kind of see the way you went, and maybe it was a little more than you thought, you aren't sure, but there it is, you're on the way up, and you're here, and you get a view, but you also go, oh, I've got to go further. Jesus here, it's almost as if he stops this mid-hike in this sermon to say, okay, if you don't understand a bit of where we've come and who you are in me, you, you won't, this part will be grueling. You'll actually not want to go. You'll turn around. Um, you'll be too tired. So it gives us a glimpse both of where we come from but where we're going. <clears throat> so we see two, two things, and we're going to see this differently. The first one is hopefully not as long, because I really want to get to the second part, and I'm going to give you the end of it. One, Jesus here talks about the law. And by that, the law and the prophets, you can think both the Ten Commandments, you can think the, you know, any commandments that were given, Moses and the law, but also, it's not just that, but when it says law and prophets, the Jewish audience here would have heard the word of God. The Bible that they had in their hands was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, which were everything. And then Moses brought the law, and then the, the prophets are all about them talking about your relationship with the Lord, with God through the law. That was the formation of God's people was, here's my law, here's how you to be set apart, be different. I brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. To be mine. I will be your God and you'll be my people. But he goes all the way in to say that the end of that or sort of its purpose and its end is that I will write the law on your hearts. It's not just about keeping law. It's about actually getting it in us. And if you notice those, that covenant of God, you get to the end where the people of God just cannot get it straight. They've never gone it straight. They've never done it right. They've always failed. And it's all foretelling and pushing us towards one who will come that will fulfill it, that will do it right, that will get it right for you. So we're going to see Jesus telling here his relationship to the law and the prophets. And then he talks about the Christian's relationship to the law. Right? So if you, unless you see Jesus' relationship to it, you'll only get your, your righteousness to surpass and you'll be, you'll be undone. You'll feel cursed. You'll feel guilty. You'll feel weighed down because you're not quite getting it right and Jesus wants you to get there Jesus relationship to law verse 17 18 do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished What's Jesus getting at? There obviously is something going on with the, the context here that he's been doing miracles. He's been, he's been doing various things. His ministry is sort of set off. He's come to bring a new kingdom 
right? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me, he said in Matthew. He knows that, that as he's going and as he's there that words have been said about, who is this guy? He teaches with such authority. But he didn't go to the schools our Jewish priests went to. He wasn't trained. What, what, what gives? Who, is the, who does he think he is? As you might say, what's he on about? Is he supplanting what the Pharisees and scribes are telling us? Is it something holy news he's saying, just get rid of that and here's a new way? No, Jesus is never. So he first wants to tell us that he, he loves the law. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He loves it. He's teaching this authoritative new way because he is, and he starts to say, truly I say to you, and you've heard it said, but I tell you. There hadn't been someone teach with such authority. And we know that Bible is God's word. Psalm 19 tells us it's a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path, as David prayed. Moses in Deuteronomy, at the end of his sermon in Deuteronomy, says that these words are your very life. These aren't New Testament ideas. But have you ever wondered, why do you believe the Bible? Why, why? Have you ever wondered or been asked, why do you believe it to be true? You can answer a lot of ways, but I think one key way is here, because Jesus does. He's earned the right to tell us, right? He's come. He's the incarnate one. He is, he's healed the sick. He's forgiven sins. He raises the dead. He dies for sinners. He's rose again. He's the incarnate one, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's earned the right and my trust. He's earning their trust. He says, I did never would come to abolish it. Actually, my ministry is the fulfillment of all that's been said up to this point. If I were to abolish all that's been said in the Old Testament, I, I, who would? I mean, I have no history. And as Eugene Peterson says, Jesus didn't just show up. <clears throat> he is coming as a fulfillment of the word. He's validating all that's gone before, establishing it, but also validating him as the true and living son. Living, breathing. He is the word of God. He's a continuation of what God started in creation, in his covenant, the law of Moses, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through prophets speaking to the covenant people of God, reminding them of the law of God for them. That God is for them and his word is for them, that he's faithful to his promises. Jesus is delighting in the law of the Lord. Why would he want to abolish it? Jesus loves the Bible stories, the story of God, the story of his love. Each gospel itself gives evidence of Jesus and his love for the Old Testament, for the law. He quotes it all the time. Even right before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is tempted. And what are his answers? Old Testament. The word of God is real. He loves it. He tells the Sadducees in Matthew 22, which would be sort of the liberal left side, religious liberal side, you err because you don't know the scriptures. Mark 7, he talks to the religious conservatives. And he says, you exalt your man-made traditions and you exclude God's. 
You leave out the commandments of God and hold on to traditions of men. He's getting on to them for leaving out God's law. You know from Luke 24 that the resurrected Jesus on the Emmaus Road stops and explains all the scriptures, the law, and the prophets that it's all about him. John 10, that those who are finding ways to trick Jesus, he says, you know and I know that the scriptures cannot be broken. These are Jesus' words about the word. It's all, for all scriptures, God breathed and profitable. Jesus witnessed his right away here to the fact that the law and prophets are to be trusted, that nothing will give way, nothing will be abolished until it is fulfilled, until it is accomplished. accomplished. How is it accomplished? We not only loves the law, he fulfills it. This is the reason for Jesus' mission. What's meant here by fulfillment or accomplishment? It is, a, in some sense, a completion or really a furthering of what God has already been doing. He is the point. The Old Testament's been leading, it's been going somewhere, and it's all been leading to Jesus. He is the promised king. He is the better high priest. He is the true prophet. Jesus' talk of righteousness at this point is one of surpassing righteousness to these guys. Why would he make such a statement? Do you think he's saying be better than them? Sorry, I'll actually skip what some here. Jesus is saying that my story is the story. It didn't begin with me. God has been worked for a long time. And so I want to give you a newsflash, and this is really something you need to take to heart. The Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus. It changes the way you read it. It's the, it changes the way you sit with it. Jesus is committed to tell the Jews that he is completely with them, holding to the scriptures actually higher than they do. He extends their thinking, saying that his very ministry is of the law and prophets for being fulfilled. It climaxes in Jesus. He is the word of God embodied. If you seek to abolish it, you will lose Jesus. This debunks any relationship you might have to, to those you know or yourself to say, well, there, there's that Old Testament history stuff, that mean God, but then I'm a New Testament believer. I just love Jesus, you know, the healing one, the one who came to save, Old Testament stuff. Jesus says, that couldn't be further from the truth. Because if you think it is just about living it out and living the law and separating it, Jesus teaching some new way, you're just going to listen and say, okay, what do I need to do? And when you try to do the law on your own, you'll be crushed. You will not be able to accomplish or fulfill it yourself. So that's Jesus giving his relationship to the law. But what's, what's our relationship? And this is where Jesus drills in. And I think he does it for, Jesus was smart, right? He, he's a great preacher, teacher, the best. He throws the gauntlet down. Here's guys that tried to live righteously, the Pharisees and scribes. They were the holy, right, the extra holy, super, super holy people. And he knows, okay, if it's true that 
The Old Testament and the law is still active. It's real. And you're going to fulfill it. You're the one who's going to accomplish it with, with, to every dot and stroke of pen. That it will not pass away. And you're the one who come to do that. What, the, what then? So what? What now? He says, well, don't relax any of it. Ramp it up. Teach it all. He says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great, called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He stops them right in their tracks. He's up the ante, he's dropped the gun, they set the bar high. So let's just take a step back in order to sort of walk through. What happens in your mind if you were, when you read the scripture or you think about saying, okay, and you're probably all grace-oriented, so you know the answer. But in our hearts we hear, your righteousness should exceed the holiest person you know. We know, we know people that are holy, that live good lives, that, that love Jesus, that don't murder, that don't kill, that get to the needy. We, we know these people, and a lot of times we do position ourselves up and against them as far as how good a Christian I am. I think that's pretty ripe in the church here at large. Not this, maybe this church. It's probably here, but the church abroad. Christians are always moving and shaking, and I'm better, and, and what it becomes is very judgy, very hypocritical. The world is right about the church. We're positioning each other. We're, we're trying to outdo each other. It should cause us to worry when we see this or we hear this. It should make us pause. Jesus' talk of righteousness is one of surpassing these guys, ones who kept it really well, one who had been an example for all. It's a very extreme ask. Why would you make such a statement that seemingly is impossible to attain? What is he doing? And saying, you have to be better. Now the sermon, and, and David, in working the Sermon on the Mount out, will we'll show you this. That, but I want to take you to the end, where you see two trees, and two paths, and two houses. You know these stories, right? The house built on the sand, right? The rains came up, and the floods, right? You know this one, right? And one stands, and one sinks, one's demolished. They look the same, right? Two paths, you get a choice. Some will say, Lord, I know you. You're, you know, and Lord will say, I never knew you. Others will, will, he will know. There's two ways. If you get that in mind, you realize that when Jesus says there's surpassing greatness, it's not that you're either good or bad. That you're right or wrong. In some ways, it's, it's different righteousness. Not, it's those who live it out by sort of the book and those who live it out in their heart. Independence and trust upon Jesus. It's not a better or greater righteousness. It is a deeper one. I mentioned to you that the Old Testament, Jeremiah tells us that he will write it, the law, on your heart. Why does he need to write it on your heart? Because <laughs> that's the seat of the emotions. Everything you do is in your heart. If it's just in your mind and you, what I'm going to do, if he doesn't drill it in, it doesn't affect you deeply. This is the deepest part of you. That's what Jesus is teaching. The religious prophets come in and, and 
disguised to trick you. They build a house on rock or sand. They, but they look nice, but actually they're whitewashed tombs. Jesus knows the heart. One path is destructive. The other gives life. It's not about being good or bad. That's why he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. That becomes a thematic phrase for Jesus as he teaches on living the Christian life. Living it in a community as we give to people, as we don't murder, as we don't steal it. That's actually deeper down than that. It's not just about murdering someone, it's about hating someone in your heart. See how he takes it deeper. So at the crux of this is for us living righteous lives as Christians. We often believe we can keep the law, and yet we don't. It's not about giving more time, pulling yourself up, but about deep dependence on the Lord, the giver of life. Hebrews 4 tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save us from death, for although he was a son, he, Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe. He is our righteousness. He is the surpassing righteous one. We are surpassing in righteousness as we depend on him completely and live out of our, the reality that we are free from the guilt of sin. See, if you're not free, when you come to the law and keeping God's law, you either, you have to fudge, we'd call it. You have to sort of make, you know, leniency for yourself. We know that God is holy. And how does he make us holy? Through Jesus Christ, right? He bridges that gap between us and him. But we live our lives as if we can now, we started with Jesus. We started with grace. We know that grace is going to finish it, right? We know that on death, the Lord, save us. But somehow, in all the in-between part, we live as if we got it, Lord. And it minimizes the cross, the power of the cross. So either we have to perform by grit. I'm going to get better. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to get to church. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give a little more to the poor this year. I'm going to serve as a volunteer in my time. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to do, do, do. Because I feel bad. Or we do really good and we, then we feel guilty because we can't measure it. We end up not getting it done. And so then we go the other way and we just feel guilty. So we either minimize our sin. Well, you know, I was tired. I had a long day yesterday. I know I yelled at you, but you know I'm tired. Right? I mean, I took a little, I mean, they didn't give me the right change, but, you know, it's their fault. Right? What, whatever it might be, we sort of minimize, we excuse sin. And all that does is lessen Jesus. And tries to make us bigger. And what we do is we lose out on Christ and his righteousness. We lose out on our heart being changed. Romans tells us, but now, after, after, Mo, after Roman, Paul in Romans has pretty much set the stage in the first two and a half chapters, it says that no one is righteous in and of themselves. No one seeks God. There is a righteousness that comes apart from the law. A, part, a righteousness of God. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul is testifying to what Jesus is saying. That the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. 
All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, yet are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption in Christ Jesus. It is Jesus who surpassed all, who became righteous for you, for me. So we have faith in Jesus to live our Christian life. For if you come righteously in your own strength and you begin to look at the Sermon on the Mount, you're really going to be dismayed and despair. You're like, I can't do that. I'd rather it just be that I don't murder someone. Don't tell me that if I'm mad at them or call them a fool that I've murdered them. I can't keep that. That's the point. <laughs> Rest in Jesus. It's not about you. One of my favorite verses, and it gets to the heart of this, is there is therefore no condemnation. If you're living the law by your own standards to try to surpass those who are better than you, to try to be better, you will feel condemned. And what do condemned people do? They condemn others. Condemned people condemn others. Guilty people make others feel guilty. But no, you, for the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. What do freed people do? They free others. Loved people love others. People have been served in such a great way as Jesus serve others. It frees you. It doesn't cause you to live by fear, but by freedom. For God has done what the law could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. What? In us. Not by him, which is by him. Paul tells us he's so that it might be fulfilled in you. This is the secret. Christ, on your behalf, the great exchange. For if Christ is in you, Although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life is alive because of righteousness. No more having to judge others. We're all really after this freedom. We try to live up to the law. We try to be good because we just want to be done with it. Why can't I be good enough? Why is good not good enough? Because it's not Christ's goodness. Before the Lord, before God. Why are you tired and frustrated and weary with the Christian life? I thought I signed up for something better than this. I thought it was supposed to be the good, happy life. Why is it so hard? Because your grit and your guilt don't sustain you. You need another way. You need one who became weary on your behalf, who died in your place, who gave his life away that you might give yours away. That when you feel like God is far away and turned his back, you know there was one he turned his back on that was his very own son. That he would say, never leave or forsake you. It's a relationship because of Jesus' relationship to the law, that he loves the law, and he keeps the law, and he fulfilled the law, he can say to you and me, may your righteousness surpass that of others. Because it's Jesus' righteousness living in me before the world. 
He takes us deeper, not into our own hearts, but into his very heart. We're no longer slaves, but sons. Sons of the king, sons of a good, good father. He's not a taskmaster. So what are we free to choose, to love, to serve, to give, to go the extra mile, to die to self? We're also free to struggle, to doubt, to sin, dare I say. To then repent deeper. It's much like Charles Spurgeon at the end of a sermon as people are walking out and saying hello and goodbye and all these things. A woman comes up and begins to just berate him. Up and down. You don't know and you didn't see and you didn't talk. I mean, just really going after him. He's got an elder standing next to him, maybe a deacon, standing next to him. And she walks off and he's sitting there going, wondering what Charles Spurgeon's going to say. Maybe you've heard this. Charles Spurgeon leans over and says, she doesn't know the half of it. Grace changes everything. People are on to you and they're, they're yelling about how you're not good enough and you're not doing this. You go, absolutely right. I'm worse than you think. But I'm more loved and cherished than I'd ever hoped to be. That helps you to keep the law. And as, this, as the hymn says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Father, would you give us greater, deeper dependence? Can we be freed up to, to keep measuring up to what we think is right, to, to measuring up You don't measure that way. You don't call us to to measure up to anything. But by complete faith and dependence. To throw ourselves into your mercy. Your compassion arms. To live only by what Jesus has done. In him, in us. We praise you. May you receive the glory in Jesus name. Amen.